I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Commence obligatory introduction in three, two, one, go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgy. I'm Taylor Quimby. And today we are starting the show with a little bit of history, sort of. The History Channel. Call your cable operator today and begin your historic journey. When it launched in 1995, the History Channel was ostensibly about history. Uh, they had features on the Titanic, the Hindenburg disaster, lots of stuff about World War II. On April the 20th, the front had reached the outskirts of Berlin. So much, in fact, that early critics called it the Hitler Channel. Broadly speaking, the audience this type of content attracted skewed older, white, and male. People who often share a narrow interpretation of history and what some might call a traditional set of values around masculinity, uh, national identity, family. The pioneers face incredible hardship, but their battles forge the American character and build the new American nation. Over the years, the History Channel, now just called History, has continued courting that same core demographic even as they produce fewer and fewer Ken Burns-style documentaries and more and more reality TV. Shows like Axemen, about loggers. Yeah, jack them right out on this flat right here. Forged in Fire, which is a competition show about blacksmiths. Tip's coming right in there now. And Ice Road Truckers, a show about, you guessed it, obviously, Ice Road Truckers. Getting started again on this hill could send Alex sliding backwards down the mountainside. 
At first blush, the hit TV show alone seemed a lot like history's other offerings. The premise is incredibly straightforward. Ten participants will fight to survive the Arctic for longer than anyone in a lone history. A group of ten men, and at first it was only men, are dropped into a remote wilderness. Unlike other reality TV, each contestant is truly alone. There aren't any camera crews or producers lingering in the shadows to step up and say cut. They film themselves with tripods and GoPro cameras. And whoever survives the longest wins as much as one million dollars. It looks like frostbite. <laughs> this is Alone Million Dollar Challenge. They're just surrounding my shelter. It was, at its inception, a pretty macho premise, I think. Man versus nature and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. But since then, it has blown up. People love this show. For a time, the eighth season was second only to Stranger Things on Netflix's public rankings. And that might be because, unlike history's other shows, Alone has evolved into something a little more interesting. Not everybody gets the chance to look in the eye of the animal you're about to eat. Something that seems to have attracted viewers outside the History Channel's usual demo. To look at these women and be like, wow, like they're amazing. And I could also be like them. I think it's a show that maybe has something interesting to say, whether it means to or not. Why is it entertaining and what is the message of the show? I think it's posing this question, what are people willing to do to get ahead? Today on Outside In, we're doing a little pop culture criticism with two people who've plumbed the depths of history's ongoing reality TV competition alone. Writers who have asked, what does this show say about our relationship with nature, about gender and class? And, and how we should feel about a show where contestants face starvation, frostbite, and literally even death. <laughs> It's on. My heart's beating. I am so excited. So, once you've seen a few seasons of Alone, you start to realize there is a very formulaic arc that plays out every time. Holy crap. I'm on Alone. It starts with the drop-off, where each contestant is plopped by boat or chopper onto a remote patch of wilderness. The site is gorgeous. It's absolutely fantastic here. Each contestant gets a handful of survival items, a bunch of GoPro-type cameras, and a sat phone they can use to tap out if they decide to give up. Tell you what, as soon as that helicopter leaves, it gets quiet. And at this stage, it does actually feel like a show about wilderness survival. People have a limited time to invest in food gathering or building structures. So you might get to see, like, a Stone Age historian experimenting with special techniques for surviving winter. They want to make a pit house because they're incredibly warm. Or meet someone who's using a bow and arrow and prioritizing big game. Shelter, hunting, and fishing. Those are my three goals. Or you'll see people 
talking about how to supplement their diets with edible plants or bugs. There's like an obligatory ant eating scene in every season. I mean, they, they got a lot of protein in them. They taste like pine nuts. Sour, kind of lemony. They're delicious. And all of that might give you the impression that surviving alone in the wilderness is pretty doable, if not somewhat easy. I thought everyone would make it 100 days in the woods. Right. But it turns out that's not what happens. So this is Eric Martin. He is our Alone TV critic for the first half of this episode. Eric teaches composition and critical thinking in a desert valley north of Los Angeles. And after getting hooked on the strangeness that is Alone, he wound up writing an essay for Medium asking, what is this reality TV show really about? So Taylor and I called him up to chat. So what do you think sets Alone apart from those other reality TV shows? One thing is, is that the Kardashian-style reality show really is about a specific kind of catharsis, right? Where you get to watch, watch people behave badly. And it's, you know, you get to point your finger at all the most venal and superficial aspects of, of our culture and say to yourself, that's not me. You guys, my daughter's sleeping. Right. And that's, I think, what we get out of those shows, at least in part. But when you watch alone, you're not supposed to separate yourself from those people. At least at first, it doesn't seem that way. It seems like you're supposed to relate to them and want to put yourself in their shoes. And I think that is different. Glorious mountain, how much you must know. My passions are music in the wilderness. I'm in a pagan folk band and a metal band. My fiance just came back from her first ultrasound. My fiance is pregnant with twins. The $500,000 prize money would allow me to give my family and twins. You know, they're drawn as family characters, right? Given a background, and that background is, I think, intentionally shaped to let you know that these are just normal people. They're not a Kardashian-style person. They're not, they're not rich and famous. Uh, and they're also not in it for the drama, right? They're in it in it for much more pedestrian reasons, I think. And so that for that, it seems like it is relatable. I mean, you mentioned the pedestrian level or seemingly pedestrian level, but like, how do you see money factoring into a loan? Well, it's interesting to hear them on the show talk about the money, right? It's going to change their lives. Uh, but one thing that's really notable is that you've got a set of people who are drawn from the kind of margins of society. So people who do homesteading, people who have this kind of niche lifestyle in one way or another. And what they're going to do with that 500,000 is buy a house, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to jump into the mainstream. You might think that they're going to just use the money to completely escape, but I have not seen any character say that that's what they were going to do with that money. And that class aspect to the show evolves as time goes on, because inevitably in every season, the optimism of the first few days begins to sour. The weather starts turning, calories are in short supply, and the reality of this particular type of reality TV really sets in. The show at first says that it's about survival, mm -hmm. but then if you, after you watch just two episodes, it becomes a show about hunger, right? And everyone is hungry all the time. And I think the show uses hunger then as a metaphor to suggest that this group of people who volunteer for the show feel that they are hungry for something that society can't give them. Mm -hmm. 
right? If they, if they stay at home and work their workaday lives, then they're not going to have a chance to get ahead. There is no path forward. And I think these people are selected from a group of survival experts, but they're also survival experts who are lower middle class or live on the bubble and who feel that whatever capitalism represents, whatever society does offer, uh, it doesn't offer the, a way forward. As a kid, my family was homeless. We've lived in a van in a mall parking lot. My father stole stolen potatoes to feed us in the van. There's one guy in season six. When he's introduced on the show, he's talking about his background, but he says that he's got a child, a newborn child, and he plans to leave that child and be in the woods for 100 days. And he says, I'm going to be away from her for longer than she's been alive. Right. And so he thinks that this is this is a good idea. He's going to change the life of his family by leaving and maybe living in the woods alone for 100 days or maybe dying in the woods. And with that particular character, this Barry character, he's consistent about that. We meet him in the middle of the season and he comes back one day after he he's been hungry and right. He's been hungry for days. I feel weak today. This is the longest I have ever gone without food. And he's gone fishing. He catches a fish. Yeah, baby, no! Oh. And then he loses the fish, it jumps off the line. That was a nice size fish. And he starts reflecting on his reason for being in the woods, right, his motivations. This is the most important thing I've ever done for my family. I know it's gonna get tough out here, it's gonna get boring and cold, I'm gonna be hungry, but my kids deserve a good start. If that means I have to suffer for it, I'm just gonna have to suffer for it. For the right amount of money, I would die for my family. If the money was right, I would die out here for my family. I just can't imagine any other reality show having a character say things that are so extreme. So one of the most interesting things about the whole I'm doing it for my family thing on the show is that mm -hmm. at first it's a reason to stay. Like I'm staying for, you know, I'm going to make the money for my family. But then it's right. also the reason to go. Like sometimes when contestants, and I, I find this to be especially dads, I'm generalizing here, mm -hmm. but uh, when they start talking about like how they miss their kids or their wife, it's sometimes a signal that they are getting ready to tap out. Right, like 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 it's a in order to justify quitting, they have to make the same argument they do for why they got in in the first place because my family needs me now. Yeah, so the show ends up a lot of time kind of reinforcing I think a traditional message about nuclear families, like society is the place that we are needed. Do you know do you know what I mean? It ends up coming back all the way around to the fact that it is a History Channel show and it's still reinforcing these kind of very traditional conservative views of, of, of family and masculinity. On the other hand, you know, there are people that go into the whole situation almost saying the opposite. Like, as you know, it's like a, it's a form of escaping society. To make another reference to American history, we can bring in Henry David Thoreau into this conversation, right? He famously wrote a book, Walden, about living alone for two and a half years in the woods, mm -hmm. right? But what you're pointing to is the idea that this show presents us with a fantasy that it's possible to be happy being alone for 100 days and be hungry for 100 days uh, in order to achieve the American dream. It's a strange 
It's a strange version of the American dream. But this also is a myth, and it's a it's a very thin one in the sense that Thoreau in his book talks about how he had visitors, right? Yeah. His mom came and dropped off food. People love to talk about how he, <laughs> he wasn't surviving. He wasn't a survivalist. Yeah. Uh, but yet his story becomes the kind of foundational story, probably for a large portion of the group of people who volunteer to go on alone because they believe in that romantic vision of life in the woods as being a, a truer life or something that can offer you that kind of sustenance or some chance at happiness. Um, or some kind of special freedom. There are parts of me that sometimes longs for the adventures as a younger man. But then I come out here and I realize very quickly, I don't get the same thrill out of experiencing these things by myself. The real excitement comes from sharing those moments with my family all this time seeking to be alone, and yet maybe I don't want to be alone. That surviving alone in the woods is not easy becomes increasingly clear as each season reaches that final third act, yep. which I call the end game. At this point, most of the competitors have called it quits, and the ones that are still left are literally in the process, uh, I would say, of starving to death. Right. And you're just watching. Good morning. cold and it's all good all good in the hood there's another fishing scene in the seventh season that will always stick with me this amazing woman named kylan marone and she's an off-the-grid expedition guide in canada Mm -hmm. she is 49 days into her stay by herself in the arctic uh, and she's trying to ice fish. Got my probing stick. Okay. I guess I'll just drag my axe. She set up this little GoPro a little ways off. So you're sort of watching this um, this view from a, a distance of her sitting mm-hmm. bent over a hole. It looks absolutely frigid. But then the music starts to rise. I think I got one. She pulls out this huge silvery fish, falls backwards onto the ice. She is just so <laughs> excited. I literally got chills, like, just listening to that. Getting this first fish is probably the happiest day of my life since my wedding day. Up until now, I've been catching bunnies. I don't think I've ever reacted that strongly to something in my life. And it's it's just so powerful to experience, like, to watch. I can see, like, that is one of the big reasons why Alone is so, I think, uh, compelling, is is seeing you know, someone have that kind of 
emotional, just deep reaction. I mean, the highs, you know, like, especially when like people are starving, like, and something goes right, the highs are super high. And when they don't, the lows are really, really low. We are worried about possible cardiac complications and worried if you continue, you may make prolonged damage to your heart. I don't want to do that. My family would rather have me alive, right? <laughs> At least I can say I give it hell. I didn't get the victory this time, baby. So nobody has died on a loan. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Uh, and I have learned that even though there is no prize for coming in second place, former contestants have said they, they get a weekly stipend. But but there is still something deeply uncomfortable, to me and anyway, about being a voyeur to this level of suffering. Absolutely. It reminds me of watching sports, you know? Like if you're watching a hockey game and someone just gets slammed into the boards, you know that they've got a really bad concussion and they're on the ice. Yeah. It switches from, oh, I'm watching this entertainment to like, oh, man. Yeah. I hope they're okay. Yeah. You know, this is real. That's going to have lasting impacts. Yeah, it's it's deeply uncomfortable to me as a viewer. I prepared a syllogism for you guys, right, about the show. Oh, please, You like please. syllogisms, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so my suggestion is that this show has a thesis. So proposition A Society provides the one and only path to allow sustained happiness, right? Civilization gives us that chance. And so without society, there is a guarantee of suffering. Okay. Proposition B in the show. Many people experience society as oppressive uh, and don't find the moral, spiritual, or practical path to happiness living in society. So if A is true, society is what feeds us, and B is also true, you cannot find happiness in society, then what is the conclusion of the show? Gosh, you know, we, we're, we're used That's, to asking the questions. We're... I know. You're not supposed to ask <laughs> us questions. <laughs> oh. it's, I think it's a, it's a dark, it's a dark conclusion. We've talked about what alone says but what isn't being said? Like, what's being edited out? There's so much talk about diarrhea and vomiting, and there is not a single mention of a woman having her period. That's coming up after the break, but before we go, are you a fan of Alone? And if so, why? We threw that question out to our private Facebook group. Jeannie says that as a dietitian, she's fascinated by the way they cope nutritionally. And Susan said she loves how it's not always the biggest, baddest guys who stay the longest, but people with a joyful attitude. Uh, more on this last point coming up. And in the meantime, if you want to join the discussion and the group, there is a link in the show notes. All right. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. 
It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. Yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. I'm Taylor Quimby. And today we are talking about the reality TV competition show Alone. Alone is made by History, formerly the History Channel. But a lot of people like me were first introduced when the seventh season was picked up by Netflix a couple of years ago. I've grown up on reality TV, but I think what it was for me with Alone was that I came to it in the midst of the pandemic. This is Tracy Clark Flory. She's a journalist and author who wrote an article about women and alone for Jezebel and our second critic for the day. Like at the very worst point where I was stuck at home um, with my kid, with no child care, working full time. <laughs> and For Tracy, there was, there was something mesmerizing about watching the women on the show. It was like she was simultaneously relating to and jealous of the contestants who were roughing it out there in the woods. Did you binge it? I binged it hardcore. Like, I really think I watched six or seven seasons in the matter of a couple months. History started having women compete on alone beginning in the second season. No contestants, as far as I know, have self-identified as non-binary or trans. But I think for a lot of people, watching how contestants conform to or defy gender stereotypes is one of the most fascinating aspects about the show. And Tracy has pointed out that the producers of Alone actually seem to purposefully undermine gender stereotypes in the editing that they do. For example, one competitor in season six his name is Tim Backus. He really starts out the show strong with a lot of commentary, making fun of, you know, the quote unquote tree huggers on the show. But, uh, we got some wood nymphs and forest sages in this group, uh, like LARPing magic spells or whatever. Very belittling. And then shortly thereafter ends up really seriously injuring himself and has, has to tap out. And I believe it's like the first episode. Oh, that hurts. Damn it. Fell backwards, knee bent the wrong way, same way I heard it. And so there are moments in the show where the editing like really sets up that absurdity of like that kind of masculine bluster and then the downfall. By contrast, some of the people Tim is mocking, the so-called tree huggers, they have really excelled on the show. So in the seventh season in the remote Arctic, there's this character, Callie Russell. Um, and to me, she's like this uh, dream camp counselor. Like she, she's waking up in the remote Arctic every day <laughs> um, in this hut that she built by hand. And it is freezing outside. And every morning she just has the best attitude. Um, you can see so much how she connected to the environment, to the place that she was in and really felt a part of it. And one instance of that that I really loved was that um, she had caught a rabbit in a trap. There's a rabbit in one of my snares. Oh my God. 
um, and was bringing it home to eat, and it was it was dead. And she just sort of like softly petted it and said, "All right, let's get you home." And it was like you know, it was just this really sweet and tender sense of gratitude about the whole thing. Why does the snow, sweet, sweet little guy? Even though she didn't win, Callie was the last person that season to get pulled out at 89 days for frostbite on her toes. And the person who did win that season was the only other person on the history of the show oh to last longer than she. There's another rabbit. Three rabbits. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, alone, as you kind of said, I mean, part of it is that idea of like an escapist fantasy or it's it's very much like this person's relationship with the the natural world around them. But, you know, at the same time, Alone is still a competition show, right? And how do you see gender factoring into the actual competition? I mean, it's hard to make any sort of broad generalizations about it. Um, I know that like when I wrote my article about this show, I think I'd only looked at the stats for the competitors up through like season seven. And it was kind of interesting to note that women on average lasted longer than men. And I don't know if there's anything to be made of that. Up to that point, only men had won the show. I think that a lot of the women that I spoke with um, from the show, they thought at the very least that women's and men's socialization around gender roles and emotions specifically mm-hmm. comes into play because um, women obviously are encouraged to be much more in touch with their emotions and capable of talking about their emotions and accessing them and reflecting on them. And men are encouraged to do the opposite. And when you're in the remote wilderness, you are having to face yourself and your demons, past traumas, all of these things come up. You know, my dad before I left said, remember, you're never really alone. But I, f- I feel alone. I'm sorry, Dad. Women who are socialized to be in touch with their emotions and process them and feel comfortable with crying are probably at a better, you know, in a better position to be able to process that stuff, some of which they might have already processed. And men who have not been supported in that um, emotional experience are probably coming up against... Um, a really formidable challenge. Anybody can judge me all you want. You are not out here doing it. You're sitting at home eating right now. You're not out here. You're not out here. Who the are you to judge? What do you think gets totally scrubbed out? One of the major things that is never mentioned on the show, at least through the first eight seasons that I've watched, is periods. Like, there's so much talk about bodily functions. (laughs) There's so much talk about diarrhea and vomiting. And there is not a single mention of a woman having her period on the show. And, like, when you're surviving in the wilderness like with very little supplies like this is a this is a relevant part of your of your experience and it's like just as relevant as any of the other sort of like mundane things that they go into great detail about Mm -hmm. um and so there's this way in which like the exclusion of periods from the show 
like casts that as other. Right. Like your typical 65 year old conservative white guy isn't going to want to hear about periods, even though you spoke with a a contestant who said that they had their period like half the time they're out there, really painful cramps. And they're having to deal with that like on top of everything else. Yeah. And it's like, this is like a major part of this person's experience that is not getting even a single second of airtime. Quick update to this point, Nate. After this interview, I did hear that a recent season of Alone did actually feature some conversations about menstruation. And was this, by the way, after Tracy's article came out? It was. Yeah. Nice. Well, we won't make any assumptions, but that's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah. But I think even if the producers of the show are thinking more about how gender is depicted or not depicted on the show, Mm -hmm. Tracy says there are fundamental aspects of the experience that are different for women um, that have nothing to do with how it's edited. They, They are baked in to the circumstances. How did the experience of watching the show change for you as you were just binging through these seasons? Like, what did you start to notice that you didn't at first? Mm, I think the thing that started to emerge for me was that I realized um, as I fantasized about becoming one of these women on the show and like weaving a gill net or, you know, putting on some camo rain boots, the thing that got in the way of that kind of escapist fantasy was not any of the actual very real um, wild threats that they were encountering on the show, like bears or mountain lions. It was encountering a man (laughs) in the woods. Like when I thought about, is it safe? It means something different for women to go out into the world and into the woods on their own. And for, you know, some of these seasons, like you don't see people on the show, but they are there. Um, off camera, like there are fishermen on their boats off the coast. Like, like the idea of it being an actual wilderness is, as always, an illusion. Like you see on the, yeah. they show these vast landscapes, but like that <laughs> doesn't mean they're actually unpopulated. No, right. not at all. And so um, that fear for the women on the show is very real. And actually interviewing some of them for the article that I wrote, every single one of them mentioned that that's what they were afraid of. Like, and they were actually there contending with mountain lions and bears. For me, the bigger picture thing that emerged as I was watching it was like how you can go off into the remote wilderness and still not be able to escape all of that gendered baggage that comes along with being a woman in the world. Thanks for chatting with us. Tracy. Yeah, thanks so much. This was fun. This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby. It was edited by me, Nate Hedgie, and Rebecca Lavoie. Additional editing help from Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and Felix Poon. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. And just curious, uh, you out there, if there's another TV show or movie or book or whatever that you'd like to see us tackle, let us know. Uh, our pop culture criticism yeah. game is fairly infrequent but there's probably lots of fodder out there that we don't know about so oh yeah if you listen to our jurassic park episode you know that we love pop culture Mm -hmm. we've got links to eric and tracy's articles about alone at our website and of course in the show notes along with more on how you can support the show or subscribe to our free newsletter join the cool kids music in this episode by blue dot sessions the new fools guy trevino and friends ambientalism 91 nova and sarah the instrumentalist our theme is by breakmaster cylinder Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Always down at the end, public radio. 
Go up. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. (laughs) (laughs) There we go.